Okay, good morning. <clears throat> I lost my voice on uh, Shavuos, so we'll see how far that we can get today. We want to have the opportunity to study Parshas Nasa together. So I don't know we'll go a full hour, but uh, we'll see how far we get in this uh, incredibly rich and beautiful Parsha. We'll begin, as always, with the overview, and then we'll talk about some specific points together. By the Be'er Shem Moshe Leymar, on page 748 in the Arts Scroll Stone Chumash, Nasa's Rosh B'nei Gershom Gamheim Leves Avosom Lemishpachosom. Parshas Naso picks up where Bamidbar left off. Bamidbar began with a census. The book of Bamidbar is the book of numbers. It is the book of counting, a book of a census. We spoke last week that when each person passed before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not only did Moshe count them, they felt counted. The person felt not invisible or inconsequential, but the person felt relevant, that they mattered. And their parasha picks up with the counting, uh, continuing with the census and the count of the Levim, and describes the different families. Naso as Rosh B'nei Gershom. When you count someone, Naso, you lift as Rosh their head. The person who feels depressed, despondent, down, the person who feels irrelevant, feels invisible, walks with their head down. And when you use someone's name, when you lift their spirits, when you make them feel they matter, when they make them count, Naso as Rosh, you literally, quite literally, you lift their head. The uh, Torah then gives us the totals of, uh, of the family of Levi who were counted separately. We've discussed in the past, why were they counted separately? Why couldn't they be included in the entire census? And the insider of Chaim Shmulevitz, the notion that uh, Levi didn't violate Kosh Baruch Hu's trust in the story of the Cheta Egel. Because of that, they were counted separately. The rest of Klai Yisrael were destined to suffer a punishment as a result. Levi was not. So why couldn't Levi still be counted among the rest of the Jewish people and not receive the punishment? Kaddish Baruch the Rebono Shel Olam, the Almighty, has the capacity to count and yet treat separately and differently. So Rechaim Shalavis explains that we are who we surround ourselves by and with. And if Levi were to be counted among everyone else, even though they did not perpetrate the same crime, the same mistake, simply being present, identifying with, associating with people doing the wrong thing also brings us down. It reflects negatively and poorly on us. It has an impact on us as well. And therefore, Levi needed to be counted separately in order not to suffer the same consequence. That's his idea. We are who we surround ourselves with. We just saw this last week. We have the Yom HaMiyuchas in between Rosh Chodesh Sivan and the Shlosh Shemeh HaGbalah the day in between the beginning of the new month and the three days in anticipation and preparation for Shavuos is also a day that we don't say Tachan and it's also considered to be a special day. What's special about it? Absolutely nothing. So why is it a special day? Because it's between Rosh Chodesh and the Shlosh Bala. Yom HaMiyuchas. It's Yichas, is who it surrounds itself with. We are a composite. We are influenced by the people that we surround ourselves with. And uh, therefore, Levi could not be counted among the rest of the, among the rest of the Jewish people. It says, the uh, next parak begins, parakei, page seven fifty. Tzavos ben Yisrovi shachum and amachana kotzerov v'chozov v'chotam elenefesh. Here, the Torah delineates the different machanos, the different camps. We have these concentric circles of sanctity and holiness of the camps of the Jewish people, the different machanos. It's something which was established first in the desert with the Mishkan, but then continued with the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. 
The next section, Vaydaber Hashem Moshe Lemor. Daber Ben Yisrael Ish O Ishaki Asumi Kol Chatos Adam Limomal Bashem Viashma Hanefeshahi. Hashem spoke to Moshe and he said, "Speak to the Jewish people, a man or woman who commits any of man's sins." person is guilty. What does that have to do? So a person who commits a sin, makes a mistake, even though this section is introduced sort of generically with this ambiguous introduction describing if a person does a sin and they're guilty, they have to confess. This section is talking about a specific sin, which is when a person steals from a convert and the convert dies, to whom do they return the money? It's a specific uh, sin, but it's described and it's introduced very generically because there's a critical principle that we have to understand. What does that mean? So the Chidush Arim explains, why is this the source? person has to confess their mistake. We've described countless times, the word chait doesn't mean sin. Sin is not a Jewish word. Chait means a mistake. So a person made a mistake. They had poor judgment. They given to their urge. They weren't able to express or exert their will over their temptation. What do they have to do? They have to make an admission. They have to offer a confession. Vihisvadu. Why is gezel, why is stealing the sin, we just said we don't believe in the word sin, why is gezel, why is stealing the mistake in the Torah where the Torah introduces the idea, v'hisvadu, that one has to confess. The Chidush Arim, the Ger Rebbe, has a magnificent answer. He says, at the root, at the core of every mistake that we make, at the root and the core of every chait that we perpetrate, is gezel, is the idea that we've stolen. From whom did we steal? If we eat without making a bracha, if we sleep in and we don't daven, if we are dishonest, if we are speak Lashon Hara, if we look at something we shouldn't look at, if we say, from whom have we stolen? Chiddush Arim says we've stolen from the Almighty. He put us here on earth, He gave us life, He gave us faculties, He gave us capacity, He gave us time, He gave us resources. And when we take all of those things, whether it's our faculty, our good health, our very life, or the resources that He's given to us, and we misuse them, and we abuse them, and we misdirect them, and we make mistakes with them, then we've stolen from God. What a gift to have the gift of time. What a blessing to have the gift of our faculties. And when we misuse, when we use our feet to run after an Avera, use our hands to perpetrate an Avera, use our eyes, ears, or tongue to do an Avera, to make a chait, to make a mistake, we have violated Gezel. We have stolen from God. And that's why this notion of taking responsibility, of taking extreme ownership, of taking accountability, and the formula of vihisvadu, the responsibility or obligation to confess, to acknowledge the mistake that we've made, is specifically given in the context of Gezel to tell us that every moment and every one of our faculties is a blessing from Hashem, and to misuse them and abuse them is a form of stealing. It's a form of stealing. And that's why it's introduced with a specific word. What is the word me'ila? We have a tractate me'ila that describes the terrible transgression, the severe transgression, Me'ila is when you have sacred property that has been consecrated and dedicated for use in the Beis HaMikdash and the Mishkan and the Temple, and a person derives personal benefit from something that was deemed sacred, something that was dedicated as holy, deriving personal benefit is called Me'ila. 
It is a severe transgression with a severe punishment. Me'ila, the personal use of something sacred or holy. So the Torah here describes this gezel, hager, is me'ila. Why? So again, the Chidush Arim, Mesalavichik said similarly, Lashem haratum la'ah. To God belongs this world, this earth, and everything in it. It's all His. Our life, our faculties, our capacity, our resources, it's all His. He gives it to us on loan. We are stewards of it. And we are given to use it in a meaningful, purposeful way, to use it for a sacred purpose and responsibility. And when we misuse it, when we make, have poor judgment, when we make mistakes, we've stolen from God, and we've also violated Me'ila. We live for holiness. We are here to live holy lives. And when we pursue the mundane and the profane, when we feed our own ego and temptations and desire, it is an act of Me'ila. We've misused our resources and we've misused our faculties just to derive pleasure and to satisfy our appetite and urges. That's limo mal bashem. We have perpetrated an act of me'ila. We've taken something sacred, namely our lives, and we've misdirected them for the use of profane. That is the textbook definition of me'ila. Lashem ha'aretzum la'ah. Everything belongs to Hashem. We shouldn't misuse and abuse it to serve ourselves in a, uh, in a personal way, for personal purposes. Okay, the Torah then goes on. In the next section. Interesting, we have the exact same language again. The bottom of page 752, we have the story of the Sota, the wayward woman. A woman who was accused of infidelity. Her husband suspects her, and he warns her. Actually, let's go back before we move on to the Sota. I wanted to make one other point. This last section, 752, when it describes who is accountable for Me'ila. What is the name of the individual, the description of the individual that we use to say, you were given blessings and you misused them, and you violated Me'ila, you've profaned something sacred. We have a lot of terms, Gever, Adam, Enosh, Ish, but what, te- what term does the Torah use here? It uses the word ish. And our rabbis understand, I spoke about this over Shavuos, just to review a little bit, because I think most of you weren't there. Our rabbis understand that the use of the term ish here means at what age is one accountable and responsible? At what age do we hold someone that they had the maturity, sophistication, that they had the wherewithal to be responsible for their actions, for their choices, to exert their will over their temptation at the age of 12 and 13. 12 for a girl, 13 for a boy. How do we know that? So our rabbis derive it from the use of the word ish right here in this, in this section. And the use of the word ish elsewhere. See, the Torah tells us in, uh, in Bracious, Lamed Dalad, the story of Shimon and Levi, the two brothers of Dina, who when Dina was kidnapped and raped by Shechem, Shimon and Levi concoct a brilliant plan in order to assassinate, to eliminate, in order to defeat and to pay back with great retribution the people of Shechem, Shechem and the people of Shechem for what they had done. Of course, they tell him, we're more than happy to intermarry with you, but you need to have a bris. It's uh, pasnished for us to marry people who are nishkamalt. You have to get a bris. And after your bris, perfect. 
So the whole community gets a bris on the third day when they're the most vulnerable and weak, as Shimon and Levi strike. And Yaakov's not happy about what they did, felt he put the Jewish people in a compromised position. Now they were a target. But we look back with a certain sense of pride or nostalgia on that story. What a Yiddish cup, what a great plan that they had, a great military operation. There's other questions we've discussed in the past on this section. Collective punishment, was it really right to take it out on everyone when it was only one or the few who perpetrated the rape against Dina? But nonetheless, Shimon and Levi rise to protect the honor of their sister, to liberate their sister, and they pay back Shechem and their people. How old were Shimon and Levi at that time? So Rashi tells us, Rashi on Pirkei Avos and Rashi on the Gemara Nazir, Rashi tells us, we have a tradition, Shimon and Levi were 13. You'll ask, how could Shimon and Levi both be 13? So some do the calculation. The Tosos Yontif, in his commentary on Pirkei Avos, does the calculation and says, Shimon was 13, Levi was only 12. Others suggest there was an overlapping year where they were both 13. But whatever the case may be, we have a tradition, says Rashi, they were 13 years old. And how does the Torah describe them? Shimon v'Levi achei dina ish charbo. Each one of them girded themselves. They took the sword and they went and they defended their sister's honor. And what word is used to describe them? Ish. And Rashi says, why the word Ish? Because they were Bar Mitzvah. They were a Gadol. They were 13 years old. So we have the tradition they were 13. The Torah uses the word Ish. And he uses the word ish in our section as well. At what age are we accountable for violating the sacred, holy life that God has given us, our faculties and the resources, the blessings we have, when you are an ish? So you see from here that bar mitzvah is 13, isha, bat mitzvah is at 12. And in fact, what's what the Mishnah in Perkei tells us, ben shlosh la mitzvos, at 13 years old, one is held accountable for mitzvahs. The Rosh disagrees, Rabbeinu Usher writes in a tshuva, that the age of Baran Bat Mitzvah is halacha l'moshe misinai. It's not derived from the Torah, not from the reference to Shimon and Levi being an ish, and the ish in our parsha in Nassau, but it's halacha l'moshe misinai. We simply have a tradition that Moshe descended from the mountain with the message that that's the age that one is mature, that's the age that one is responsible and can be held responsible. Others, the Medrash Breshis Rabbah tells us from another place. It says, Avram vayigdal hayeled vayigamal, that Avram raised Yitzchak, Yitzchak grew older, vayigdal vayigamal. So which is it? Vayigdal sounds like he became a gadol. He became the age of majority. Vayigamal sounds like he was weaned. Being weaned sounds one is weaned from, one is weaned from nursing, a baby, an infant. Which is it? So the Medrash says, Rabbi Shai Rabbah Amar Nigma Miyetzahara. It means Vayigdali became a bar mitzvah. What are you weaned from at bar mitzvah? The immaturity, the self-centeredness, the narcissism. A little baby only cares about themselves. A little baby wants to eat when it wants to eat and needs its diaper change when it needs its diaper change and wakes its parents the whole night long, gives nothing, takes everything, and that hopefully dissipates from being a newborn. And the goal is that we mature. And as we grow, we transition from self-centered, egotistical, narcissistic, newborn babies, that the world revolves around us with no consideration for anyone else. And hopefully we transition so that by the age of bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, it entirely inverts itself. Where now we're selfless, 
where now we are capable of caring about other people and putting their needs and their interests first. Vayigamal, what was he weaned from? He was weaned from an attitude of everything revolves around me. That happens at 12 or 13, and then in the teenage years you go back to being an infant and a newborn and a baby. I'm thinking the world revolves around you again, and then hopefully you grow out of that again, and you can realize that the world is not just about you. The Gemara and Sanhedrin suggests that Baram Bat Mitzvah from another place, not our parsha Isho Isha, that you see 13 is an Ish, is a man, is a woman. Or maybe it doesn't think from a different place, but it tells us anatomically, biologically, the body itself communicates. The body testifies to our capacity for responsibility at that age. The Gemara says that it's at 13 that a boy can father a child. It's at 12 that a young lady can conceive a child. And says the Gemara, if your body as the capacity to take this ultimate responsibility of creating a human being, of the continuity of humanity, if your body is capable, is mature, that means that your soul, your heart, and your mind are mature as well. And Ravol ben Aleshur writes very beautifully that every person needs to know that from the moment his reproductive organs begin to develop, he's no longer living in a personal, private state of existence. The very fact that we have the capacity to reproduce means we can care about another. So the whole notion that ish isha is an age in which we can care about another, that we transition from self-centeredness to selflessness, the body itself is saying that. You're the age that you can conceive a child. It means you're the age you can care about someone else. You can literally produce, reproduce someone else, and you can care about someone else. And if your body says you can care about someone else, then know that your heart, your mind, your soul should also communicate that you can care about someone else as well. Why is a bat mitzvah a year earlier than a bar mitzvah? So the Torah Tamim, Baruch HaLevi Epstein says that, of course, women, young girls, mature, before boys, ask any middle school teacher, and they'll tell you who teaches both genders, that girls certainly mature both physically as well as emotionally, intellectually, before boys do. The Rambam has a different reason. The Rambam says women have a shorter lifespan than men, and therefore their life is on an accelerated track, so they mature earlier, their bat mitzvahs earlier. And I'll tell you something fascinating. Today, in the 21st century, women outlive men in every single country in the world. Life expectancy for ladies is 81.2 years, and for men is 76.4 years. But the studies that prove this also say it's a relatively recent phenomenon beginning just in the 20th century. The Rambam was right in his time, probably because women died in childbirth and for other reasons, but in his time he was right. It is a difference in that we're blessed to live in another time. You know why men die before women. Yeah, because they want to, okay. Vinyotze, the bad joke. Good. Vinyotze, the bad joke. There's a lot more to say about this. I want to get back to our parsha, but I'll just end this part. Isho, Isha, ki ma'al ma'al bashem, this idea that at bar and bat mitzvah, at 12 and at 13, we are an Isha and Isha. We are a man or a woman. Not by American law standards. You can't vote or drink or drive or own a gun. But from Jewish standards, to count in a minion, to be responsible for one's own actions. This is reflected in the bracha, Barsha Petarani, a father says. I've spoken about another time. Why do we only make that bracha on a bar mitzvah, not on a bat mitzvah? Only for a boy, not for a girl. But we've seen this notion of celebrating one's bar mitzvah, one's bat mitzvah, celebrating adulthood means that we have the capacity and we change from inward to outward to caring about other people. Lubavitcher Rebbe Zatzal points out 
When Shimon and Levi are 13, what do they do? They rise to defend their sister. What it means to be a gadol, a katan only cares about himself. The gadol, what it means to be a gadol, what it means to be mature, is to see the pain and the suffering of others and to want to intervene, to want to relieve some of that pain. There are unfortunately gedolim who act like katanim. We have adults who are acting like children in this way. There are extraordinary children who act like adults long before the bar or bat mitzvah who have that capacity to care about other people. But we see the definition of bar and bat mitzvah, the difference between a katan and a gadol, between being a minor at the age of majority, between being a kid and being an adult, the difference is our capacity to care for other people. Shimon and Levi rise to defend their sister. We see it also with Moshe. It says, Vayigdal, that he gets, becomes a gadol, Vayigdal, Moshe, Vayigdal, he becomes a gadol. What does it mean to be a gadol? What does it mean to be the age of majority? Vayigdal, it means to go out to one's brothers. It means to care. It means to see the pain of another. It means to intervene on their behalf. It means to relieve some of that pain. That's what it means to be a gadol. And that's what it should mean for us to be a gadol as well. Rav Shechter points out, the uh, Gemara references one of the great rabbis, Shmuel Hakatan. It calls him Shmuel Hakatan. He wasn't short. He wasn't vertically challenged. I'm supposed to say today. Shmuel Hakatan. Why was he called Shmuel Hakatan? So we know that after the 18 brachos were established that we have as our Shmona Esrei, the rabbis deemed it necessary to establish a 19th bracha in order to combat the tzedukim, the Sadducees, these other sects that were distorting our sacred tradition, that we daven valamashinim, those who are our enemies, our adversaries, those who are distorting our truth, those who are against us. But who could they get to compose it? Such a sacred text that would be used in perpetuity by the Jewish people, the Amida, the Shmona Esrei, whom could they tap to be able to uh, compose it? So they understood that they had, they had to ask Shmuel HaKatan. Why? Because Shmuel HaKatan was the one, the Mishnah Navas tells us, he would always repeat, Don't be overjoyed by the fall of your enemy. Someone who got a gishmak, a joy, a pleasure. What's the German word for that? For when you, when you get pleasure out of other people's downfall? Schadenfreude or something like that? There's a, there's a German word. So someone who got pleasure out of someone else's pain, they couldn't have the purity of thought to compose such a bracha, bless you. It had to be Shmuel HaKatan because he was the one who regularly said, Bin one should not be joyed by the fall of their enemy. He was innocent, he was pure, he was kind, he was good. And therefore he was the one who with the right sincerity and the right motive could compose that 19th bracha of Valam Hashinim. So Moriv Rabbi of Shechter points out he was called Shmuel HaKatan. Why was he called Shmuel HaKatan? Was this some kind of demeaning label? Shmuel HaKatan? Like he was a nar? He talks to someone, you're a nar, narishkeit. God forbid, God forbid. He was called Shmuel HaKatan. Even when he was an old man, he was called HaKatan. Because we always associate a child has an innocence and a purity and an optimism and a hope and sees the goodness in others. And then you become an adult and you think you're supposed to become cynical and sarcastic and hardened and pessimistic and see the negative in everyone and in everything. Shmuel, even as an adult, remained Shmuel HaKatan. He was able, even as an adult, to have the outlook on life of a katan. And so on the one hand, we want to become a gadol, mature, responsible, sophisticated, more advanced, on the one hand, we should become a gadol, as the Lubavitch Rebbe said, to be a gadol means like Shimon and Levi, to see the pain of another and to relieve that pain on the one hand. On the other hand, we should be like Shmuel HaKatan and remain a katan in our innocence, purity, optimism, hope, 
and seeing the good in everyone around us. So all this comes from our parsha, Isha, Isha. When are you? When are you responsible? Says the Chidush Arim. It's Gezel. It's Me'ila. Kodesh Baruch Hu gave you faculties and blessings and capacity. He gave us life. He gave us resources. And we use it for chait. That's Me'ila. We're taking the holy opportunities that we have and we're squandering them. We're wasting them. We're misusing and abusing them. That's Gezel. We've stolen from Hashem. Hashem Ha'aretzim And it's Me'ila. We take something with the capacity for sacredness and holiness and we make it profane. And it's a perfect segue because that same word me'ila is used to describe the story of the sota. A man, whose wife goes astray, and she commits me'ila against him. One second, I thought me'ila is only against God. Mishnayis me'ila, me'ila is all about we have things dedicated for holy purposes and we use them for personal reasons. That's me'ila. So why is the story of Sota introduced with the words kimala bomal? Where's the me'ila in the story of the Sota? And the answer is obvious and simple. What's the word that we use to describe marriage? Nesuin. The other word? Kiddushin. Hare'at mikudeshes Lee, we wrote about in the Shua's Digest, the last article, is the notion that if a person says Hareat Mekudeshes, they're not married. It has to be Hareat Mekudeshes, Lee. We have to give over ourselves. We have to be personally invested. We have to be personally present. We also spoke about on Shua's Gottman and Chapman, the love languages and absent presence and dating before and dating during marriage. Hareat Mekudeshes, Lee, I'm giving you me giving you my time, my affection, my acts of service, whatever your love language. If you just say mikudeshes, you're not married. It has to be hareat mikudeshes li, to me. I'm giving you myself, I'm making myself vulnerable. I'm intertwining our lives and our destiny. I'm sharing everything, literally and figuratively, physically and emotionally, I'm sharing with you. You have me, mikudeshes li. And when a person does that with another, makes them entirely uh, vulnerable, exposes oneself in every which way, invests in the other to violate that trust, to violate that relationship, that vulnerability, is an act of me'ila. Marriage is kedushin, hariat mikudeshesli. It's holy, it's sacred. And when a person violates marriage, violates trust, it's ma'alabo ma'al, it's me'ila, to take something holy, and to misuse it and abuse it, bless you, to take something holy and to make it profane, that is the dictionary definition of me'ila, of ma'al. Now it's very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Now you're wondering what I'm about to say, what's so very, very interesting. The Torah says, ish, ish. What do we get, a stutter all of a sudden? This redundancy, ish, ish. It should say, ish, ki sista ishto. Amen whose wife goes astray and and violates the sacred nature of the relationship. Why ish ish twice? Why does it say ish ish twice? So I'll say something maybe a little controversial, but some of the Mepharshim point out, some of the Rishonim, ish ish, what led her astray? What led her to look elsewhere? What set her on the path of seeking emotional satisfaction or romantic satisfaction elsewhere? Ish ish because he asserted himself too much. He was overpowering, demanding, abusive. 
he asserted himself and his masculinity and his dominance too much. He tried to dominate the relationship, ish, ish. And the result of ish, ish, not to justify, not to excuse, not to forgive, but to understand, ish, ish. His dominance of ish, ish led to kisiste ishto. I share this because, and I've shared this in other contexts, um, so I'm just repeating something that we've shared before, but I think it's very relevant here, is um, there's a great therapist, Esther Perel. She's a, a best-selling author, and she has a famous TED Talk. I've mentioned it before. I don't know if anyone watched it or looked it up after the last time, where she talks about millions of views, how a couple comes back from infidelity. And she talks about that within the infidelity, which is inexcusable and intolerable, unbearably painful, one should be held accountable for, all of that is a given, but within the infidelity is the revelation of what was missing in the marriage. Not that that's the path to discover it, not that it's excusable or acceptable, but if one understands or tries to understand what happened in a way to learn about what went wrong or what was missing, one can actually come back from infidelity with a stronger marriage than ever. It's the theme of her TED Talk, it's the theme of her best-selling book, and it's the theme of her successful counseling in which she has achieved that. And I have seen that myself in counseling, that if addressed with an effort and a desire to reconcile, to learn, and to grow, and there has to be a lot of accountability for pain that was caused, one discovers. And I think that's really exactly the pshat in this pasuk. Ish ish ki siste ishto. Ish ish. It's inexcusable. For this man, he bears unbearable pain that his wife did this. And there's nothing he could have done that would justify her behavior, ever, ever. But now what? Do they use the experience to understand? Hey, you were an ish-ish, you were dominating, and that dominance created that result? Or, she has a line, she says, most people will be married more than once, the only question is, will it be to the same person or another person? That's the theme. Most people will be married more than once, will it be to the same person or another person? How we react and how we recover, one can be left with a better marriage than ever, or it can dissolve and fall apart. Ish, ish. When he <laughs> dominates and when he, uh, he bears responsibility for what he did in that relationship. So the text here tells us the story of what happens. He suspects her, he therefore warns her, don't seclude yourself again with a man. She secludes herself and she has two witnesses that she has secluded herself. And um, afterwards she's brought to drink from the Mayim Ma'arim. She has to drink from this water that contains Hashem's name that's dissolved. Hashem himself is willing to allow his own name to be erased in the name of preserving Shalom Bayis. So important to Hashem, so sacred to Hashem is Shalom Bayis. He's willing to allow his own name to be erased. She drinks. If she's guilty, she dies a horrific death. If she's innocent, she receives an enormous blessing. What's the blessing that she receives? She receives fertility. She's able to uh, bear children. It's the opposite of the Sota. Rashi says, she drinks the water in the base of Mikdash and she didn't sin. She, uh, if she used to give birth with pain, now she gives birth easily. This is the Gemara. If she used to have girls, <laughs> if she used to have uh, children with uh, one complexion, now she has children with a nice complexion. If she used to have children who were short, now 
She doesn't have to spend money on the growth hormone. She gives birth to tall children. She used to give birth every two years. Now she gives birth every year. She used to give birth to one. Now she'll give birth to twins. I'm not sure all of these are considered blessings by everybody. But the Gemara and Brachos, Lamerala sees them as Brachos. Or according to her second opinion, it just means a woman who's barren will now have children. Will now have children. In fact, if you remember, Chana had Azaz de Kedusha. Chana had a holy chutzpah. And when she went, she was davening to Hashem, misunderstood by Shmuel as being intoxicated and drunk. What was she saying to Hashem with her holy chutzpah? She says, look, give me a child. And if you don't, I'm going to seclude myself with a man. My husband will suspect me. I'll come to drink the Mayim Ma'arim, but I will have been innocent. And you're going to give me a child either way. So give me a child and spare both of us having to go through that procedure and my husband the pain. But it was, it's considered she has others to Kedusha. That's considered a holy chutzpah that she had, taking the laws of the Sota and manipulating them, leveraging them for her own advantage towards, towards Hashem. So the question is famously asked on this. You know, if she violated her husband's trust, and in fact, she had infidelity, I understand she suffers a grotesque, a graphic, horrific death. If she didn't, why does she get any reward or blessing at all? This is a great question. Why does she get any blessing at all? She did something wrong. He said, don't seclude yourself. She secluded herself. She secluded herself. It turns out while they were in seclusion, which was witnessed, while they were in seclusion, they didn't cross a line. But she secluded herself when she was told not to. She violated the law of Yichud. So why does she get some blessing, some bracha? What she should have is you're off the hook. You're not going to die. You're not going to implode or collapse. Get out, walk away quickly because uh, you barely escaped. Why is she blessed with an amazing blessing? Anyone? It's a good question. What? Oh, so the Beis Yisrael answers, many answer. It's an amazing, amazing idea. The Beis Yisrael answers, you see that for the Ribbon Shalom. Even when we've made many, many, many mistakes leading up to another mistake, but we stop. We stop short. We express our will. We're able to control ourselves with a sense of discipline before we make one more mistake. That too is precious to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That too is precious to Hashem. So you spent an hour and a half telling Lashon Har to your friend, and you had one more piece of really juicy, delicious, incredible Lashon Har, but at that moment your conscience kicked in and you said, you know, Ad Khan Vesulo. I've shared enough, I don't want to gossip anymore. Kosh Baruch Hu showers you with bracha. And he says, I don't only love you when you didn't make a mistake to begin with. I love you when you've made many mistakes, but even at that point. Because there it's the hardest. Because an hour and a half in you say, I am such a reject. I am so distanced from Hashem. I lack such self-control. I'm already in such trouble. What's one more piece of juicy Lashon Hara? I spent an hour looking at the wrong things on the internet. What's three more images? I spent an hour eating the wrong things. What's one more bite? It's when we're deep in that we think, what's the difference? I've already given it all up. I've already lost all merit. I'm already due all punishment that I might as well do a little more. Comes the Torah and says, no. She couldn't contain herself. She secluded herself. She had been warned. She secluded herself nonetheless. And there are witnesses who testify. But even in seclusion, she showed the discipline not to cross that line. That too is precious and beloved Takarish It's a very important message for our children and for ourselves that we're living in a world of temptation and desire. And we struggle. 
And it's hard not to cross a line in any of the areas of Yetzirah that we're talking about. And oftentimes we cross that line and then we give up on ourselves and we say, I'm clearly not a person who can abstain from X. I eat that, I look at that, I say that, I go there, I can't. And we need to know that for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even the smallest amount of exerting our discipline and our will is precious, is beloved, and is worthy of great blessing. Yes, she secluded herself, but she stopped short of crossing that line. And for that, she deserves great blessing. Ah, she shouldn't have secluded herself. True. And there's accountability for that. But the fact that despite secluding herself, she stopped before she crossed the line, that to a Kaddish Baruch Hu is worthy, is beautiful, and is deserving of great blessing. You know, even secluding herself is a big problem. We're living in an age that not only are physical infidelity a problem, but emotional infidelity is a very big problem. Going back to the Esther Perel, first of all, sometimes for the other spouse, the emotional infidelity can be even more painful than a physical poor judgment, mistake, lapse of judgment. Emotional is even more because one's giving of themselves, making themselves vulnerable, emotionally connecting with someone else. It's more dangerous because the person thinks I haven't crossed the line if it's only an emotional infidelity, an emotional affair. But that's what this woman is guilty of. She secludes herself which means literally and figuratively she's secluding herself, she's willing to open up and make herself vulnerable. But going back to the message of the Esther Perel, ish, ish, maybe she found someone with a listening ear, a sympathetic ear, she found someone with a non-judgmental ear, she found someone she could confide in that she didn't have at home because he was ish, ish. That's not to defend the behavior, that's not to excuse the behavior, that's not to tolerate that behavior, I can't be more clear about that. But it's to say that from those moments, there are things that can be learned that can help the recovery process. And one can not only recover, one can grow even, even stronger as a result. Even stronger as a result. So the Torah gives us the detailed formula, what happens? She's brought to the Kohen, the Beis HaMikdash, she offers a sacrifice, the Kohen prepares this special mixture, she drinks. The entire process is not only unusual, but it seems unfair. Because if two kosher witnesses testify they saw something, then we act. And if not, we presume innocence. And here the only things the witnesses saw was that she was secluded. So why does she have to drink to begin with? On whom is the burden of proof? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? She comes out of the room and she says, yes, we were in the room and the door was locked. He was helping me with my uh, computer problems. We were playing chess with one another. I was talking to him because I find he listens more sympathetically than anyone else. But we didn't touch each other, we didn't cross that line, nothing more happened. So why don't we say, innocent till proven guilty? Why is she schlepped to the base of Mikdash, to the Mishkan, and she has to bring a karbon, and she uncovers her head. This is actually the Torah Makor for the halachic obligation for a married woman to cover her hair from the fact that the sota, her head is uncovered. It suggests that the whole time she's married, it was covered. Why do we do all this to her with the assumption that she was unfaithful? With the presumption that she had an affair? Why don't we rely on the legal principle that, bless you, innocent until proven guilty? So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zetzal, whose son, Rav Nassim Kamenetsky, just passed away in Shavuos. We're in the midst of uh, his shiva. So in his Sefer Amos Liyakov, Yaakov Kamenetsky says that our assumption is all wrong. We approach this parsha with the assumption that if she secluded herself, she must be guilty. And the reason that she's drinking this is to confirm her guilt. Hold her accountable. Pay her back. 
Says Rav Yaakov, not so. The Torah is actually assuming the exact opposite. The Torah is assuming she's innocent. Ah, if she's innocent, why does she have to make her made of the Mishkan and bring a carbon and cover her head and drink this water? So listen to what Rav Yaakov says. Teva ha'adahu, shem nichnas belibo ezo min chashad al ishto, shuv lo yetzi asafik milibo la'olam. Ela imkena kodesh baruchu b'chvodu va'atzma aftiach lo, sha'amnam hi tahora. Says Rav Yaakov, a person's nature is that once they're suspicious, it's difficult to regain trust, and trust is the basis of any healthy relationship. Since Hashem knows this relationship can't be repaired unless trust is restored. The Gemara tells us, As we said, Kodesh Baruch was so committed to this marriage surviving. The Mizbeach sheds a tear for every marriage that doesn't survive. Hashem is so devoted to this marriage surviving, He lets His own name be erased in the process of proving her innocence. So the whole process, as Rav Yaakov, he's flipped this whole sugya on its head. It's not to prove her guilt, it's to try to convince the husband of her innocence. Because she comes out of that locked room and she says, look, yes, we were alone and we were secluded and we violated your warning, but nothing happened. He will spend the rest of his life not knowing, not believing. And it takes Hashem Himself, it takes the Almighty Himself performing a miracle to prove that in fact, nothing happened. That's how suspicious we become. And that's how much suspicion undermines a healthy relationship. And that's our responsibility in a world in which we no longer have the option of the Mayim Ma'arim to avoid behavior which could lead to a suspicion, a suspicion that could never ever be resolved. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. We said the bracha is that she had, she was barren, she'll have children. If she had every two years, she'll have every year. If she had only one, she'll have multiples. If she had girls, she'll have boys. Who says she wants to be married to him? He put her through it. So I think it's exactly in the model of the Esther Perel. Everyone should go watch her TED Talk. Just Google Esther Perel TED Talk. But it's exactly in that model. He put her through it, but she also put him through it. How did they get into this mess to begin with? Kisista Ishto. Because he says, look, I find that you're texting a lot. I find that you're talking a lot. I find that you're socializing a lot with this other guy. I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't like where it's going. Don't be alone with him. And then two witnesses come and say, saw your wife with that guy. So he says, we got to go to the Beis HaMikdash to resolve this. So who's putting whom through it? Did he put her through it? Did she put him through it? So the Torah, that's exactly what Yaakov Kamenetsky is saying, is the Torah comes here and says, they'll be in a gridlock, they'll be stuck, they'll be blaming one another. Why are you so suspicious of me? Can't I be alone with a guy and we do business or, or we talk about uh, news and sports and can't you believe me that nothing happened? And he says, why would you put me through this to create such suspicion? Why are you alone? It's inappropriate. You're violating the boundaries of modesty just being alone. And they'll be stuck unless God himself comes and performs a miracle to resolve it, to prove that nothing happened. And hopefully in the aftermath of that, that can allow them and enable them to now heal. Where she says, you know why I was alone with him? Because ish, ish, you dominate me. And I don't have room to breathe. And you don't give me the passwords to our bank accounts. And you give me access to our finances. And you don't, again, I'm not excusing any behavior or explaining any behavior. I'm simply, what? It's an indictment on both of 
Right, it's an indictment on both. Ish Ish was a problem. Kisista Ishto is a problem. Kosh Baruch Hu says, let me resolve it. Now you go back and do the hard work. And if you do it, you'll be married more than once, but to the same person. And if you don't do it, it's the end. Men allowed to do anything they want? Anything we want. Because <laughs> the rabbis hate women. So we can do anything we want. I'm just joking. We're not allowed to do anything we want. And of course, it is a gross violation of a, of a woman's trust and of the institution of Kedushin for a man, it's a terrible, gross violation. Men are obligated equally, if not more, to be loyal and to have fidelity. However, there's a fundamental difference. A man, biblically, can be married to more than one woman. A woman cannot be married to more than one man. And so, if a woman has infidelity, then the relationship is over. Because the halacha is, she's also bain labal, bain laboel. She's not allowed to live with either her husband or with the one with whom she had the affair. But if a man, it's grotesque, it's wrong, it's a violation of trust, but technically speaking, he would be allowed more than one wife, and therefore there's a different consequence. He doesn't get tested with a mayim ma'arim. Again, understand, biologically there's a fundamental difference. When it comes to a child, we know a child's mother by definition. The womb he emerged from is his mother. But how do we know a father? That's why a woman can't have more than one husband. But a husband could have more than one wife for that reason and others. Rabbi Angel was here, Rabbi Chaim Angel, for, as a scholar in residence several weeks ago. And he spoke about that as a paradigm of several he wanted to offer where the Torah tolerated something but didn't endorse it. So the Torah tolerated polygamy in antiquity without actually endorsing it. And then it caught up when Rabbeinu Gershom in the, around the year 1000 instituted, at least for Ashkenazim, that polygamy was forbidden for men as well, and we continue to practice that, is binding on us until today. Yes? That man. He also suffers. He also suffers a horrific death. She drinks the water, and it has an impact on him. If, in fact, they were guilty, not only does she die, he dies. In fact, it's brought down, I forgot which Rebbe, he says, this is the makor of the idea. Oh, I should have brought these source sheets and got into this. This is the makor of the idea that when we uh, drink, we say l'chaim. Why do we say l'chaim? Often a person makes a l'chaim, you say it should be for a refuah shlema, for shmerel beryl. It should be so that they can have children. It should be, this one should have a shidduch, l'chaim. You're drinking, you're drinking, you're guzzling down that alcohol. Has an impact on the person somewhere else? So they say, yeah, you see from the Mishnah and Sota that just like she drinks the, the Mayim Ma'arim and the Mikdash, wherever he is, he also suffers the consequence of her drinking. You see there's a notion that one can drink and it impacts someone even far away. So you say L'chaim, you drink L'chaim, and that's why we say L'chaim. What we're saying is L'chaim v'lo l'mavis. It should be the opposite of the Mayim Ma'arim. The Mayim Ma'arim brought death. Our drinking should be L'chaim. Our drinking should be for life. I want to give a hoshir on how to make a l'chaim. The whole origins of the word l'chaim, how to make a l'chaim. Do you say l'chaim and the bracha and then... Do you say the bracha and then make the l'chaim? Do you make the l'chaim and then the bracha? There's a lot to talk about another time on that, on that subject. Okay, so to, then the part, we're in the overview of the parsha. Then the parsha goes on and it gets into... The next topic is the birkas uh, koanim. I'm sorry, the next topic before Duchening is the Nazir. 
Yayin v'sheichar, v'chometz v'yayin v'chometz sheichar lo yishteh. The Nazir, the person who takes a Nazarite vow, who has to abstain from these uh, practices, and who strives for a certain level of holiness. And our rabbis say, whoever sees sota bekukula yazer atzom in If you see what happens, a person who drinks too much and becomes intoxicated ends up behaving inappropriately, ends up behaving immodestly, ends up problems like a sota. So a person who sees a sota bekukula, if you witness, you read a headline about, you heard the story about somebody who went through a sota story, you should take a vow not to drink wine. Make a siag, make a fence around yourself to protect yourself from engaging in such behavior. It's interesting, in the Mishnah and Gemara, we also have it, smichas parshias. Nazir and Sota are near each other also in the Mishnah, but in the opposite order. Here in the Torah, first you have the story of Sota, then you have the story of Nazir. In the Mishnah, first you have the Nazir, then you have the Sota. So the Imre Emes explains why. To teach us that you have to take precautions. Don't wait to hear about a sota to become a nazir. Become a nazir before you ever hear about the sota. The Mishnah is the antidote to the order of the Torah to tell us don't wait to hear about or learn about an indiscretion. Be proactive in taking precautions in living a modest life to prevent slipping into behaviors which are inappropriate. Is it the vow for a certain length of time? Oh. So a Nazir can take a vow for any length of time. A Stam Nazir is a Shloshim Yom. If you didn't delineate how long, it's assumed to be 30 days. But you could say much longer, you can say shorter. Stam is for 30 days until you conclude the term of your, of your service. But going back on the Smichas Parshios, so the question is raised here. What do you mean if you see a Sota Bekukula, Yazir Atzman If you see what happens to a Sota, you think you have to take a Neder, a Nazir? you're going to be extraordinarily careful not to follow her footsteps. The, the Gemara describes very graphically. Her legs collapse, her stomach ex- explodes. She dies a horrific death, so does he, wherever he is. They die a horrific death. You think if you witness that, you're going to then be vulnerable to follow her footsteps and be a sota? Isn't witnessing that alone enough to prevent you from following in that path? Why do you have to go to the extreme of Yazir Atzma Minayayan. It's a great question. What do you think? You people are no help to me whatsoever. <laughs> no help. It's all on me. But yes. The, happens. the more you see violence on TV and you see people getting killed, you should think, gee, I'm never going to do that. Right. But statistics actually show the opposite that the more you see it, the more culpable you are. True, so the statistics show that about TV. The more exposed we are to violence, it doesn't necessarily, it desensitizes us about violence. That's true, but that's seeing it on TV. I don't know if that's the same thing as you heard about a friend, a neighbor, someone in the community who gave into the Yetzirah, and now their whole life has fallen apart. Their reputations fall apart, their marriage is falling apart, their finances are falling apart. So the likelihood is you know about that, you're not going to follow. You'll be more protected because you've seen that and you don't want to happen to you what happened to them. So what do you mean, Yazar Atzma Minayayim? But when people, that's why you see the sort of because it is like warning for you. See. It's a, okay, it's a warning for you, so all the more so. It was a warning for you. Why do you have to go to the extreme of taking on this nether, this nazirus? Because people deny these things. They think they're above it. Okay, so some people think that they're immune, they're above it, it won't happen to them. There's a beautiful commentary I saw that says, the reason that you're taking action 
is not because you're vulnerable to follow in their footsteps, but it's because now you know that that act is possible. You always thought, like, okay, the Torah says don't have an affair. Who has an affair? Who do I know would have an affair? We're a holy people. We're righteous people. We have a sacred institution of marriage. And the moment we learn about, become exposed to somebody who's capable of doing that, it in itself leaves an impression on us. It changes our mindset. It brings it into the realm of possibility. It makes it something which is real and which is possible. And even if we don't become now more, more at risk of doing it, but just the fact that we've been exposed to it sort of contaminates and taints us. And therefore, to react to it and to offset it, we have to do something to increase our sense of holiness and sanctity. Yazir atzmo min hayayin. Would they know why? Yeah, I think they would know why. Um, I assume that they would know why. Shimshon, yeah. And I always remember that story. Torah. Though, I always remember that story, though, that he was so strong and so everything, right. but because he was fooled by a woman. Yeah. And Delila. Delila. And his whole life, and then it's yeah. died Exactly, exactly. That's the Haftorah. The next section, let's just wrap it up. Okay. The next section is, of course, the Birchas Kohanim, Kosovarchu, B'nai Yisrael, Amor Lahem. There's a lot to say about this. The threefold bracha. The threefold bracha. So I'll tell you a beautiful pshat on the threefold bracha. It says, Ko Sevarchu, thus shall you bless the Jewish people. We all just received that bracha yesterday. Shavuos. If you daven at our Sephardi minion, you can get the bracha every single day. Kosovarchu is B'nai Yisrael. Thus. So the Medrash and Bresha says, Mehechan zachu Yisrael lebirchas kohanim. From where did we merit? From where do we deserve to get this bracha of birchas kohanim? So the Medrash says, there's an allusion in the Pasuk itself. It says, Kosovarchu. Thus shall you bless. Where else do we see that word ko? Remember back to Bresha's? The story of the Akeda. Vehani vani vanar nelcha ad ko. He tells Eliezer and Yishmael, you wait here. We're going to Ko. Where were they going? To Kosovarchuas B'nai Yisrael. The Sefer Das Sofer says, you know Kosovarchuas B'nai Yisrael. You know what the greatest bracha a Jew could have is? Kosovarchuas B'nai Yisrael. The greatest bracha is when we walk together with our children on the same path. When we go on the path of Torah and mitzvos, when we get nachas and joy, when we see what they're accomplishing and achieving, when we see who they are and who they've become, when they see that they've imbibed and they're living our messages and our values, ko sevarchu is b'nei Yisrael. The greatest bracha b'nei Yisrael can have is ko v'ani v'anachat ko. The greatest bracha we can have is that our children, our grandchildren, walk on the same path as us and give us tremendous and great nachas. The last section of the parsha are the nesim, what seems to be redundant, the 12 offerings that were brought all exactly the same, and yes, yet the Torah takes up enormous real estate by repeating it over and over and over. This is the reading of Hanukkah. The princes each brought exactly the same thing, but we introduce separately for each of them. Why the redundancy? I once heard a rabbi describe this parsha as a parsha only a bar mitzvah boy's mother could love. <laughs> Because for everyone else, the whole two-thirds of the parsha, it's just repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again. Why are we taking up such precious real estate with the Torah? So the Slonim Rebbe says, this is the Torah source for 
um, that the Rahman Aliba boy, that Kharj Baruch who wants our heart, he wants our kavana, he wants our intentions. Two people can do the exact same act, but what we bring to the act is ourselves, our personality, our attitude, who we are, our intention, our kavana. The Torah repeats it 12 times to say, on the outside, superficially, it looks like all 12 are the same. But because each one does it with their own intent, and each one brings their own personality, in fact, they're all very different. We can look at mitzvahs and say, why do I have to be the same as everyone else? Why do I have to be the same as myself? Yesterday I did the davening, today I do the davening, tomorrow I'll do the davening. Every day, every time, every Rosh Hashanah, every Shavuos, every Sukkot, I'm doing the same external acts over and over and over again. The answer is Rahman Ali Babaya Kadush Baruch who doesn't want the external act. It's who we are and what we bring to it in our intention and internally. In that way, each one is very, very different. And so while it looks like we're reading the same thing because each Nasi was different, their Karban was different as well. Have a great week.